You have brought us into fellowship with the living God through Jesus Christ, the fountain of grace and mercy, the one whom to know is to have everlasting life. I thank you for giving us an appetite for the truth, an appetite for the word of God, a desire to know you. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Why are they tuning in? But for that very reason, not out of duty, but because there's a longing in their hearts you have put there to learn, to grow, to be sanctified, to see more and more the truth of who Jesus is, to understand the word of God, to have it applied to their lives. Thank you. Fulfill in them, then, a desire for the truth, a desire to seek you, to know you, to rest in you. Take and use this passage to that end, thanking you for the hand of the Apostle Paul, thanking you for the preserving of this text for our good, trusting you will use it to bring us light, life, hope, encouragement, humility, conviction, and power by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So your handout, beloved, the Reign of Life, Romans 7, 1 to 6. I'll uh, go ahead and read those verses for us, and then we'll unpack them together. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, <clears throat> she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What's the context for this text? Paul is teasing out for us the implications of our union with Christ. And one summary concept to use, implication for our union with Christ is, everything's new. We have new relationships, we have new freedoms. Think of some of the new relationships. Obviously, you have a new relationship to God. You no longer know him as judge. He's father. His son is friend, our older brother. We've been adopted into his family. You have a new relationship to yourself, actually. You have a new relationship to others. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Uh, in the beginning at five, he told her, you have a new relationship to your trials, a new way of thinking about your trials. New relationships and new freedoms new freedoms. He's been working through, beginning in six, our new relationship to sin. We're free from sin. We're free from the tyranny and the reign of the devil. We're free from death. We're free from condemnation. And so the next logical thing Paul has to address is, oh, okay, if in the gospel God has made all things new, what is my relationship to the law of God? That will essentially capture Paul's attention 
in all of Romans 7. Now that you're in Christ, what is your relationship to the law of God? Notice what sets this up, some of the things he has said on his way to the beginning of chapter 7. At the end of 5, when the law came in, sin increased, 520. That might lead you to think, oh, wow, when the law came in, sin increased. Is the law, therefore, a bad thing if it produces sin? Sin somehow increases in view of the law. People might be thinking that. He's anticipating that you might think that. That's why he's going to write chapter 7 for us. A little bit into chapter 6, he writes, you're not under law but under grace. That might leave you uh, asking the question, how do I know how to please God? Again, what's my relationship to the law? I'm not under law but under grace. So he's got to clarify any confusion in your thinking about what it means to be under grace and not under law. He goes on in the end of 6 to say, we're no longer slaves of sin, we're slaves of righteousness, and that prompts a very natural question, if I'm a slave of righteousness, how does the law of God bear on me living like that? And then, in my struggle with sin, right, there's only strugglers, there's people, there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who, who are now, because they're at peace with God through Jesus, or correspondingly at war with sin, or those who are at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God, well, because of our union with Christ, we're at peace with God, hallelujah, through the spoils of Jesus' victory, peace with God through Jesus, now we're at war with sin, we're not struggling to be free, we're free to struggle, sin's at war within us, you woke up this morning, sin is at war with you, wants to get the better of you, and Paul is saying, because you're in Christ, that doesn't have to happen, you're no longer a slave to sin, so in your struggle with sin, where are you going to run to? Are you going to run back to the law? Meaning, there's something in us that prompts us to keep wanting to prove our worth, prove our value, prove our acceptance before God by our performance. Where does that come from? It comes from the garden. Adam and Eve were originally created to prove before God by their righteousness, by obeying God's command not to eat of that tree, they were wired, as it were, to prove that they belonged in God's presence by their performance. This still lingers in our hearts. This is why all the religions in the world except Christianity are religions of works. And there's still something in you, I, I, I suspect you recognize it, where, where you, you're tempted to run back to the rules, back to the law, to find your footing before God. Do more. Try harder. Take, get all those spiritual disciplines, all of course of which are important, and base your acceptance before God on how well you're doing in those disciplines. That's religion, where your worth before God is ultimately grounded in your obedience. Paul doesn't want that. He wants your obedience grounded in your approval before God based in Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done, we're filled with a new affection for God so that we're obeying God for the right reason, not to get him to like us, not to prove our worth, but because we're absolutely loved and accepted by him and Jesus. So that's what I meant by in our struggle with sin, we're tempted to run back to the law. And you know, it's easy, isn't it? If the law says don't do this and I keep myself from doing that, I can feel pretty good about myself. 
I can puff myself up thinking I'm staying out of trouble, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. Now I'm far worse than I know. Uh, and actually the close relationship I have with the law of God, the more I let it pierce into my heart and expose my motives, that Hebrews uh, 4.16 passage, the word of God is sharper and then a two-edged sword and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As you grow as a Christian, what becomes more and more vital to you, clearer to you, are your motives, your intention, that your behaviors all spring from uh, prideful motives, ultimately. Okay, so how does Paul argue? How does he answer the question, what is your relationship to the law of God? First thing he does, he lays out a principle. Verse 1, do you not know... Brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So if you live in a society with laws, uh, those laws have jurisdiction over you as long as you're alive. You, uh, if you uh, were double parked somewhere and you died in your car and somebody wrote you a ticket, that ticket has nothing to do with you because you're dead. The law has jurisdiction over you as long as you're alive. Death ends the reign of a law over a person. It breaks its power. Pretty simple principle. But then he illustrates it in verses 2 and 3. Here's the illustration. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. So here, I'm going to diagram this for you. We've got husband, wife. Okay, that looks pretty clear. These two are bound by the law of marriage, okay? Marriage in most cultures is a legal contract. It's that way for a reason. It's supposed to make it a legal entity. So, married woman, bound by her law to her husband while he's living. He says, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. Her husband has a heart attack and dies or whatever. Guess what? There's no marriage here, therefore the law of marriage doesn't apply to her. She's released. She becomes a single woman, presumably, eligible for remarriage if she wants to. Only in the Lord, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, remarry only in the Lord. She's released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, let's put him back in the picture. They're married. She wanders off and hooks up with another man, what's happened? She should be called an adulteress. That's the definition of adultery. Having a relationship with somebody that isn't your spouse. Obviously, this cuts both ways. Men do that. Women do that. There's a reason Paul is focusing on the wife, ultimately because we're in the scripture, basically, Jesus is our husband. We're going to end up being married to him. That's, he's not... He doesn't say women can commit adultery more than men. He doesn't say that at all. That's not the point. So if while her husband's living, she's joined to another man, she'll be caught an adulteress. Okay? Bad thing. But, but, um, if her husband dies, it comes back to the point. She's free from the law. She's not an adulteress, so she's joined to another man. So let's hope it's not this adulterous person. If another man comes into her life, she is welcome to marry him again. Now the law of marriage applies. Pretty simple. What's the point? The law binds you in a marriage relationship. Death releases you from it and frees you to be bound to another person. Quick sidebar for you. Two, two sidebars on this note. 
Uh, what's behind, whose idea is it that marriage should be an institution of law? It's God's idea. How is it supposed to function in relationships? A lot of different ways, but one of the ways this binding relationship functions is it creates an environment where you can have conflict without a fear of the other person leaving you. So in our marriage, I, uh, when I do pre-marriage counseling, I tell people, and uh, Janice and I are married 42 years as of the 29th of this month. In our marriage, sounds like a long time, doesn't it? 42 years of Janice putting up with me. She gets the medal. Um, in our marriage, we've never used the D word. We've never, we've never said, um, I'm going to divorce you. And I've talked to Christians from time to time who threaten divorce because they're having struggles. Now, the, the way this, these walls of commitment are to function, among other things, is it creates a space in which when you have conflict, it forces you to work it out. Right? Because you know your heart. What do you want to do in the face of conflict? Walk away from it. You want to leave it. I mean, this is one of the main reasons people get divorced. They have problems. They have issues. I'm going to be happier outside of this commitment. So the walls of commitment create a place where you have to work out your differences. You have to resolve your conflicts. And many of us know if we hadn't had those walls of commitment, we probably would have bailed. And we're all better off for it because relationships get better when conflicts are addressed in a biblical way and they're resolved. The relationships get stronger. So these walls of commitment are to function in God's economy to make the relationship safe. My wife shouldn't wake up in the morning wondering if she doesn't perfectly please me, am I leaving? She shouldn't have that fear. I shouldn't have that fear. That was the first sidebar. The second sidebar is this. The Bible teaches that there are occasions, two specifically, where you can sue your spouse for divorce on the grounds of porneia, sexual infidelity. That it was a very broad word in the original language. Jesus teaching on it says, except for the grounds of uh, uh, sexual immorality. So sexual immorality is one grounds and desertion is the other. If, if your spouse leaves you, you're still not bound to that spouse. This is in our standards as well in the Westminster uh, Confession. This is in the PCA position paper on divorce and remarriage. So there are two conditions, sadly, where a spouse is free to marry another and that is they have sued for a lawful divorce. Two grounds. Marital unfaithfulness sexually and desertion. Just want you to be aware of those two sidebars. Okay, so there's the illustration. Pretty simple. Gonna apply to virtually every culture on the earth. What's Paul's application? It's verse four. Therefore, and there you go, there's this application word. My brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Let's take a look at some of these phrases because they're pretty important. Made to die to the law is an aorist tense. Aorist is a past tense that means it happens once versus the imperfect tense, which is an ongoing 
activity in the past. Aorist is something that happened one time in the past, an aorist, and it's a passive voice. You didn't do it. You were made to die to the law. This happened for you outside of you, not, not by your doing. You were made to die to the law implies what? That you once were bound to the law. So now let's look, look at you as an individual by virtue of being made by God, for God, in the image of God, your relationship to God, what God requires of you, is stipulated in the law of God. The law prescribes the way we're supposed to live. It can't produce it. We need a power outside of ourselves to produce it. So we're all born, as it were, under the law. It tells us that if we're to have a relationship with God, we owe God perfection. The law stipulates that per, per, uh, perfection. That's how we all are born into this world. We're bound by that. There's no, there's no escaping this. If you're going to know God, you're going to be fully human, you're going to die and go to heaven, you are bound by the law. The law has its demands on the one hand and its penalties on the other. The law says, do this and you will live. And the law says, if you don't do this, you will die. The penalty of law-breaking is death. So, you were made to die to the law implies that you were once bound by it. This is actually a kind of slavery. You owed God. You were a the law was your taskmaster because you owed it perfection if you were to be right with God. Next phrase. Well, let's, one more thing. You also were made to die. Notice the law didn't die. You did. How did you die? Through the body of Christ. The vehicle of being set free is his body, union with Christ. Think about Jesus. Jesus Christ comes as the second Adam to do in our place where the first Adam failed. Paul writes in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, a man, born under the law. A man to represent you who were bound by the law. So Jesus Christ comes to, uh, uh, to live as a human being in your stead. He faces, he faces the demands of the law of God. And what did Jesus do with the demands of the law of God? That every single one of them never for a nanosecond deviated from what God required. Perfect. Perfection. And yet... He, made, he met the penalty of the law of God by dying on the cross in our place. This is why Christianity is rooted to the substitute. Jesus does it all for you. He keeps the law perfectly in your place as a substitute. He dies the death your law-breaking deserves on the cross as a substitute. So Christ comes, and therefore, if you are united to Jesus by faith, that's how we become one with Christ. We trust that this is true for you. Faith believes a promise. God promises the moment you entrust your welfare, your eternity, to the work of Jesus. You trust that he did it for you. You lean upon it. You believe in it. What happened to Jesus correspondingly happened to you. So you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Not only is the righteousness of Jesus uh, imputed to you, his death is imputed to you. And we've already seen earlier in 6 how Christ uh, conquered death, he conquered sin, he conquered the law, all through his 
life, death, and resurrection. So the vehicle of, being, um, of dying to the law is the body of Jesus Christ. That's why it's critical that God came in a body. That's why it's critical that Jesus was raised in a physical body from the dead. You don't want to be joined to a dead body. That just does you no good. That's why any version of Christianity that denies the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is not Christianity. And, and this is one of the ways Paul is reasoning here. So you died through the body of Christ. That's the vehicle. In Jesus' body, the demands and penalty of the law are fulfilled. And notice Paul goes on to say then, in order that, there's a purpose here, we might bear fruit for God. What fruit? Well, one way to think about the fruit is, what would it mean to be married to Jesus? Right? Have a love relationship with Jesus. Jesus is that perfect spouse who loves you, seeks you, serves you, helps for you, helps you, prays for you, protects you, provides for you. And part of the genius, I think, of Christianity is when, when uh, Paul calls the church the bride of Christ, Jesus is the husband of the bride of Christ, that puts husbands in a place of being brides, husbands or wives, in that sense, that Jesus is our husband. And therefore, when you understand that, you're never going to abuse your wife because Jesus doesn't abuse you. So what does it mean to be married to Jesus? You're in a love relationship with Jesus. You're responding to his love. You want to grow in that love. What do married couples do to have good relationships? They talk. They spend time together. They look at each other. Do you spend time looking at Jesus in his word? Do you listen to Jesus? Do you do you take your plans, your desires, your dreams, and discuss them with Jesus? So it's a marriage relationship. And therefore, all other loves you have above him, they're spiritual adultery. He can't tolerate any other loves. And this is why in the Bible, uh, God calls sin spiritual adultery. So look at your loves, look at your passions, look at the way you live, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way you talk, the way you treat people, what you choose to do with your, uh, your energy. All of this is a reflection of the love of your heart, the love of your heart. When Jesus is that love, it looks very different than when he's not. So think about what it means to be married to Jesus. He's the spouse that's perfectly forgiving, boundlessly compassionate, who understands you, and he wants you even in your worst condition. He wants you. He'll never reject you. In union with Christ, he never uses the D word with you. He's committed, he's committed uh, to your welfare. And of course, he brings that to pass. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, that Jesus makes sure by his spirit, he works in us that which keeps us united to him. And we'll get in some of that more in detail 
in chapter 8. So think about what it means to be married to Jesus. What's the implementation of this? Verses 5 and 6. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, the law has a way of provoking irritating sin. You see the speed limit sign, 55? There's something in you that says, I want to press the limits. Wet paint, do not touch. There's something in us that wants to touch. This is somehow in God's economy, the way he has wired the world. But the nature of sin is, in the face of the law, sin wants to break it. Sin has a way of provoking it. It arouses sinful passions. And they were at work in the members of our body. Now, at work is the Greek imperfect tense. In the past, an ongoing work, not aorist, an imperfect tense. Uh, these sinful passions were at work in the members of our body. We lived in sin. We could not sin. To bear fruit for death. What is that? Well, it's, it's anything contrary to the life of God. Think about God. What does the life of God produce? Holiness, righteousness, goodness, beauty, love, wisdom, truth, purity in all its forms. Or as Paul teases out in Galatians 5, one might remember the list we've looked at in our study, list of sins. Here's just one from Galatians 5, 19. The works of the flesh are evident. They show themselves. You can spot it, typically. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, of which I warned you and now warned you if you practice these things, why would you expect God to let you into you, you Why would you expect God to let you into his heaven if this is what you practice? You're still a slave to sin if this is what you practice. So notice most of these sins reveal passions out of control, passions for good things out of control, and relational breakdown. Sin always, always, always destroys our relationships. So, uh, which were, uh, so there are work on our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6. But now, having been released from the law, uh, free to do whatever you want, released from the law, no restraints, antinomianism against the law, just live as you please, God's going to forgive you, grace is always greater than your sin, don't worry about obedience, just be your own person, just be a free spirit, do whatever you want. Is that what release from the law means? Absolutely not. Having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit, not in onus of the letter. So there's a new way to live, and that is serving God in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. What does it mean by oldness of the letter? I think it's this picture here where you owe God obedience, and you know, I can never give it. I can never measure up. So there's a slavish fear. God could strike me if he wanted to. Or, if you're self-deceived, pridefully thinking you're keeping the law, you're good enough for God, <laughs> that's just another form of death, another form of slavery. The oldness of the letter, you owe God this or you'll die, or he's going to get you. Slavish fear. 
That has gone. We're no longer living there. In union with Christ, we now serve in the newness of the Spirit. And I just want to tease out a few of the things that that means. Serve in newness of the Spirit. Here's a new way to serve. A new purpose. I see myself now as an instrument in the Lord's hands, not a slave to my passions. So much better. Lord, put your hand on me. Lord, reach into my heart. Lord, change me. Give me an appetite to bring to pass what pleases you. I want to glorify you. So there's a new purpose. God saved me to bring glory to his name by the way that I live. So much better than in my passions. And you don't like to be around people who are living out of their passions. You can demonstrate what it means when the Lord has his hand on somebody's life. Beautiful. A new motive, again, not drudgery. Oh, I've got to do this again. Not fear, God's going to get me if I don't uh, obey. But pleasure and gratitude. Have you developed that sense of appetite in your soul of wanting to please the Lord? For its own sake. Just because it's good. Just because it pleases Him. Because as your husband, you love Him. We want to please the ones we love. We love to do good and neat things for the people we love. Ah, oh, here's a new motive. And then there's a new power, what Paul calls not the oldness of the letter, which can never produce life, because you get life and obedience the way God wants it by the power of the Spirit. He reflects on this in a little bit more detail in 2 Corinthians 3. I won't read it all, but I just want to read 2 Corinthians 3.18 for you because it illustrates a very important principle, the principle you become what you look at. Paul says, now the, in 17 of 2 Corinthians 3, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Freedom for what? Freedom from being shackled to my passions, Freedom to enjoy God and serve Him and love serving Him. Freedom, where the Spirit is. And we all, with unveiled face, unlike Moses who came off the mountain, etc., he was so glorious he had to cover his face. That was the old covenant, and it had this kind of great glory. The new covenant is even greater glory, Paul is arguing in the preceding verses. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's sanctification by the Spirit, not sheer effort, not brute law-keeping, not buck up, try harder, just you get more disciplines, you're going to be okay. No, it's beholding the glory of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Seeing His glory, where do you see that? You see it in creation. You see it most clearly in his word. You see it in the lives of other Christians. That's why we have this thing called Christian fellowship. Somehow God's glory shines through the way other people speak, the way they talk, the way they serve. I was talking to one of your officers this morning who was sharing with me that he's been witnessing to a neighbor who's dying of cancer. So there's a glory in that. One of your officers is seeking to share Jesus with his neighbor there's a glory in that. That encourages me. That's an example for me. We prayed that in our prayer time this morning. Uh, David Green prayed for all of us to have a heart to share Jesus with our neighbors. 
So we're beholding the glory of the Lord in his word, through his cross, and we're being transformed into the same image. How do you become like Jesus? You look at him. So here's the principle. You become what you look at. I have no hope for my own sanctification unless I am fixing the eyes of my heart on Christ, principally in his word. And of course, we see him in the sacraments, which we haven't had in a while, but God has designed that, that we see Christ through the sacraments. We see him in his word. I feel like I'm absolutely a goner without getting my heart's eyes fixed on God's word saying, show me Jesus, wherever I'm reading in the Bible, show me Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, love him, and in loving him, I'm being conformed more and more to his image. Sometimes we're the last to see it. Because as we're looking at Jesus, we're also seeing what? How unlike Jesus we are. We're convicted of our sin. We're seeing our junk. The closer you get to Jesus, the more unlike Jesus you feel. And that's why we live a life of repentance and faith. We see that sin, we repent, and we turn and we look to Jesus in faith. We look to Jesus in faith, we see sin, we repent. We repent, we turn and look to Jesus. The Puritans used to say, for every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. Yes, I discover I'm a far greater sinner than I knew. My heart is far more desperately wicked than I knew. But I am more loved than I ever dreamt possible. That's the tension of the gospel. And as I think I've taught you in other settings before this, where are you going to live in that tension? Are you going to live on the, Jesus loves me, but I'm terrible. If that's the last thing you tell yourself, that's going to be the thing governing the way you live. The gospel is, I'm wretched, I'm terrible, I'm, there's an ongoing discovery of the depth of my sin in my own heart, looking to Christ, but I'm loved. I'm going to live out of that love. I'm going to rest in that love. So that's the, the, the new power of the Holy Spirit and the new partnership is not slavish fear of a taskmaster where you've never done enough, never done enough. The law always is knocking at your door in the morning saying more, 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 better, 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 better. But humble reliance upon grace because God's going to supply amply everything you need to seek him, to love him, to serve him, to know him, to glorify him. So I think where this ends then is, is regularly asking ourselves the question, perhaps every morning, am I resting in Jesus' love? Is there a restlessness in you? Are you restless? Was it Augustine? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Jesus. If there's a restlessness that may be God pointing you back to the love of Jesus for you, demonstrated at his cross, demonstrated by him clothing you in his righteousness, being raised from the dead to secure your future, sending a spirit that he might live in you and be with you, revealing himself to you that you might know him. Are you resting in his love? He has adopted you into his family. He's your older brother. He's given you brothers and sisters with which to do this thing called life. Are you resting in his love? 
If you're restless and you're not finding your heart's rest in this love, you will go to some other source to find that rest, some other pleasure. And that's a false god. That's an idol. That will let you down. That produces death. That becomes a taskmaster. Only the Lord Jesus as taskmaster brings the kind of joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control that we all are longing for. Humble reliance upon his grace. Just wake up and say, if left to myself, I'm going to ruin this day. I'm going to ruin myself. I'm going to ruin everybody else around me. Run to Jesus who has unfailing grace, more grace for your sin than you need, grace to empower you to live for him. So you, you're, you're savoring his grace and his mercy. One of the songs I sing constantly, virtually every day by John Stoker, is thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, the boast of my tongue, thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Your free grace, your mercy, has won my affections and bound my soul fast. The law can't bind your soul to Jesus. His love, his grace, his mercy does. When you taste it, you want to obey him. You want to please him. Why? Because you want to reflect back to him something of the glory of his own righteousness, his love, his compassion. By the Spirit, the Spirit is about mirroring through you to others in this watching world what is glorious about Jesus in the unseen world. The unseen Jesus is making visible the invisible reign of his grace through visible people like you and me, albeit frail, albeit weak, thoroughly imperfect. Nonetheless, the Spirit wants to mirror that and reflect that, and then Jesus looks at you because of the work of the Spirit, and he's satisfied because he's seeing himself reflected. And therefore, Christian growth uh, invariably is, is this slow journey toward an increasing hatred of sin and an increasing love of righteousness because of what it means for Jesus, because of what we're reflecting about Jesus. All right. Next week, I've got two, I'm going to take a hiatus between uh, these verses and the next seven in Romans, and I'm going to do two diagrams that tease this out in even more detail, because I think it might help. So let me pray for us. <clears throat> we stand before our, you, our Father, in awe of your commitment to our welfare, sending Jesus, full of glory, full of grace and truth, revealing to us who God is, modeling for us true humanity, what we were created to be. And Jesus, we rest this morning in your righteousness. It's enough. We're perfect in your Father's sight legally. There is nothing left to prove. Nothing to lose. We're righteous. We're free. 
If the law comes knocking, we send it to you. You've kept it for us. Thank you for the glory of credited, imputed righteousness. And Jesus, we worship you as the perfectly law-abiding God-man, born under the law, born of a woman, that you might redeem those under the law. You have saved us. The law cannot crush us. It cannot condemn us. You were condemned for us in our place. What a love. What a Savior. What a release. What a relief. What a salvation. And so we boast in your cross. Uh, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my greatest gain I count my loss and pour contempt on all my pride. In view of the cross, how can we not hate our self-sufficient pride, our self-promoting pride, our self-indulgent pride? In view of the cross, this love, you dying, suffering for us. Oh Lord, we need this. We need heavy doses of this love. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters and my own weak heart that we would be filled with the love of God as the Holy Spirit, as you pour out your spirit into us. And then in this precious Wallace family, may uh, the love of God bind all these qualities together as we seek to have the peace of God rule in our hearts, to which indeed we've been called a one body. May the word of Christ dwell in us richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with spiritual songs and hymns, giving thanks to God the Father, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, that we might bring glory to his Father. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Might see some of you soon. Drive safely. Thanks for tuning in. I will see you next week, if not sooner. Thank you. Board two. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.